0: This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. Step into the arena. Dan Pink first came to my attention with a book called Free Agent Nation, and he followed that book up with another one that got my attention called A Whole New Mind, and where he described that left-brained thinking was going to be done, in a lot of cases, by computers, and that an MFA might be equally as valuable as an MBA, something I ask him about here. He followed that book up with Drive, which was followed up by To Sell as Human. I'm not sure if all of these are New York Times bestsellers, but I believe most of them are. And most recently, he wrote a book called When, and it's about having perfect timing. I was intrigued by the title, and I was a little concerned about the title because I thought it might be about how you can have perfect timing and getting some result you want, but it's not. It is an exceptionally well-written book, an exceptionally well-researched book, probably with more science than you're used to, but in such a practical, tactical, applicable way that it is a a joy to read, and I'm going to call it one of the more important books you need to read in 2018. It will actually help you think more clearly about how you produce the results you want in the limited time that you have. This is Dan Pink in the Arena. How are you, Dan? I'm good. Thanks for having me back on the program. Yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, There was a long time between books, though. About five
1: years actually, between this book, this latest book, and suppose human.
0: Yeah, that was a long time between books, but it's worth it. It's a a long wait, but the book is out, and it's awesome. Thanks. I appreciate that. I want to go backwards though a little bit. and the first time I met you, uh, you did a book signing here in Columbus, and it was for Whole New Mind. and I think that book gave me the idea that in the future an MFA was going to be more important than an MBA. I think that was sort of one of your premises, right?
1: It was. And it got me invited to a lot of art and design colleges uh, <laughs> and not that many business schools. So uh, yeah, the idea there of that book, which I'll, I'll say for your readers, since you already know this, is the book made an argument about the abilities that were going to be necessary in the emerging world of work. And the argument was is that certain kinds of work were easy to offshore and automate, what you can think of as metaphorically left-brain work, logical, linear, sequential, SPT spreadsheet kind of work. That kind of work, I argue, was becoming a commodity. And what was going to become more valuable was work that was outsourced hard to automate. And that ended up being things that, in this country especially, we undervalue. Uh, things like artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking, And that those who were becoming the, the first among equals. And so, in many ways, being an artist, getting uh, understanding uh, what artists do, which is they compose, they give the world something they didn't know what was missing, they put the pieces together. They're synthetic thinkers. Uh, they have a degree of empathy that those kinds of skills were actually over time going to become more valuable than the MBA skills.
0: And, and how do you feel about that premise now? I generally still agree with it. Uh, one of the things
1: that, that in, in that book in particular that I can't tell whether it's annoying or whether it's something that's entirely my fault is that, you know, I intentionally titled the book, A Whole... New mind. And so one of the things that I made clear when I did go out to these art and design colleges is that it's not like you can rely on the artistic empathic stuff and not have the other stuff. If you don't have the other stuff, you're done. All right. Like the left brain spreadsheet SAT abilities are absolutely necessary. They're absolutely necessary. They're just not sufficient. And it's these kinds of abilities that are becoming more important. So at some level, and you see some a few people doing this, it's sort of like the MBA plus the MFA is really the way to do it. I always tell these design students, you are not allowed to run away if someone puts a number on the list. <laughs> uh, every single one of you should take a course in accounting and get caricatured a little bit.
0: When I was a kid, I went to LA to front a hair metal band and my mom used to send me motivational quotes out of the Reader's Digest. And now I sent my son to Denison where he's majoring in theater and creative writing. And she said, why didn't you make him go to business school?" And I said, because I, I can get him a job in business with one phone call and and he can learn that part of this. But I think that humanities and uh, a liberal arts degree and all those other things, actually the intangibles later on end up being what allows you to be good at whatever you do. I just think it's a good way for him to spend uh, his time.
1: Totally. First of all, people do better when they do what they want to do and love what they like to do. Okay, If your son or anybody's son or daughter is interested in theater interested in creative writing, they're probably going to be decent at it. They're probably going to work at it. And that's actually the most important Like, Do you have something that you care about and are you willing to work hard? And so things that are freely chosen, we're much more likely to work hard on, we're much more likely to get better at. You can take somebody and say, no, I don't care if you're interested in theater or creative writing. I want you to major in accounting. And it's like, oh, I don't care about accounting. You're going to end up being a mediocre accountant. The other thing is is that those kinds of skills are extremely... Extraordinarily valuable on two different dimensions. One, theater. Actors are trained in empathy, right? In order to play a character, you have to empathize with that character. You have to get inside that character's head, see the world from that character's perspective, know what they're thinking, know what they're feeling. That is a profoundly important skill in any professional domain, period. And it's also exceedingly difficult to outsource or automate. So, that particular skill at the core of learning to be an actor is invaluable. Then we go to the creative writing part of it. What I have seen, I'm sure you've seen this too, is that out in the business world, most people can't write. Their writing skills are horrific. And so just the ability to write clearly gives you an advantage. But if you have... And I'm a big believer in the skill of composition, whether it's musical composition or uh, written composition, that a lot of what we're going to do on the job is compose. So anytime you do a presentation, you're composing in a sense. Anytime you have a business plan, that's a composition. Anytime you're putting together a team, that's a composition. And so I think those compositional skills are really important too. So I I think you can make a very muscular, full-throated argument that your son is actually making an incredibly strategic choice if you ever were to want to go into business. I'm happy to call your mother and tell her that.
0: (laughs) I'll, I'll let her know you're calling. Yeah. Uh, she should stop worrying. It's uh, it's all going to be okay. I was fronting well, How did you, you feel about you doing a hair saying. metal band? Exactly. exactly. Well, exactly.
1: How you, what about that? What kind of feedback did you get from her on your on your uh, hair metal band N-
0: Nothing but support, 100% support the whole way. Live your dream, go to LA, front a hair metal band. There was never any, any hedge at all. But now that it's my kid, she has a different opinion about that. So it's very interesting. It's, it's interesting how that happens. But she's 71 now. So she has a different view and she's probably more worried. He's really good at it. And you're right. He, he, I, he doesn't work right now because he's in 32 hours of rehearsal a week. That's a lot of rehearsal. He's in four plays. So you're right. He does what he loves.
1: The other thing that reminds me of is this banker uh, I talked to once years and years ago about he was on the hiring committee. He hated hiring. And the people that he hired ended up being really good, so they kept him on the hiring committee. And he said, "You know, I don't like doing this, but it's pretty easy because what I do is I basically look for a minimum GPA. I don't remember what the GPA was, whatever. but it wasn't like I, don't, I only want people with 3.95 or anything like that. Much, much lower, but not super, super low. Not like a two something or anything like that. You know, but but if you're above like a 3.2, I don't really care if you're 3.3 or 3.9. It doesn't matter to me." That's my first screen. My second screen is I look for musicians and athletes. And and I think you you could actually add actors to that for reasons I'm about to say. Musicians and athletes, first of all, they show up. They practice, all right? That's what rehearsal is. They practice, they practice, they practice. They show up even when they don't want to show up. That is the nature of being an athlete. That's the nature of being a performer, whether you're an actor or a musician. The second thing that he said is that they know that their performance affects other people's performance and other people's performance affects their performance. Actors know that as well. So a lot of people who are much more sort of individually oriented don't really have a sense when they get them to the workplace. It's like, wait a second, I want to work with good people because they make me better. And actually one of my jobs is to help make other people better. And musicians, athletes, actors understand that inherently. Even those kinds of I hate the phrase, but it's what they call it, these quote unquote non cognitive skills that you learn from being an actor are
0: powerful. It's all intangibles, I mean, I think the intangibles yeah. end up being you know well that's what I hire for. I want the intangibles. I want to know if you've got hard, if you do show up, you know are you going to perform when when the pressure is on those kinds of things. you don't see that in the gPA or the resume No way. in fact, the high gPA sort of indicates that you're maybe too much of a rule follower and, uh, and not, not maybe not playing enough I think that's not
1: true in all cases, but I do think it I do think it's true in some cases. It also could be. I just remember people, a few people who I went to college with, it's also, they, they had, you know, I think exceptional high GPAs. And the reason was, is that they took unchallenging classes. Yeah,
0: that's the easy way to do it. Game it. Right. Game it. What, uh, what captured your attention so much? I, I, my third book comes out in October. So I think my view of writing a book is you have to fall in love with some idea enough that you're going to dedicate your time and energy to actually doing the work of writing a book. So what got your attention that you were so deeply, you know, in love with some idea that you wrote this book?
1: Well, I mean, I really wrote the book. The, the main impetus was just frustration and that I was making all kinds of time decisions in my own life. I was doing it in a pretty half-assed way and I wanted to do it in a better way. And I was looking around for guidance. I wasn't necessarily dying to write this book. I, I was very keen on wanting to read this book um, <laughs> and, uh, and it didn't exist. And so, I uh, started looking at the research, and that's when I got really, really interested because there was so much research out there. It was in so many different fields. It was so fascinating, and it was so largely untapped, mostly because it was in all these different fields. And you know, as you know, the world of academia is extraordinarily siloed. So, the economists don't talk to the psychologists, and the psychologists don't talk to the biologists, and Biologists don't talk to the cognitive scientists, and yet remember really close to two dozen disciplines. You had these scholars who were asking very, very, very similar questions, but they weren't. They had no idea they were asking the same questions.
0: You did an amazing job pulling all this research together. Right. I want to. I want to get into that. I mean, the the book it's so accessible. Uh, the ideas and the stories are so good. You just get dragged through the book. I did. I mean, it it drags you straight through. This idea about a chronotype. I guess I knew what that was, but I didn't really have the, the, the kind of thinking behind it. So how do we understand and know how deeply chronology is embedded in the human being as a species? Because I didn't, you sort of know there's, there's morning people and evening people and things like that, but you don't really know that there's all kinds of actually research behind this idea that explains oh God. That a much, much better way than most people are aware of.
1: There's an entire, fe- I mean, you know, from the book, there's an entire field devoted to this. It's called chronobiology. You know, chrono time biology study of life that is, is dedicated to studying our our rhythms, our time based temporal rhythms. Three American guys who won the Nobel Prize in medicine at, uh, last year were chronobiologists. All right, so this is a, there's an entire field devoted for this. And I think you make a very 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 good point. Is that one of the things that we overlook is that we are biological and temporal creature. Um, it's not like we have a biological clock. We have biological clocks in basically every cell in our body. <laughs> and it has a huge role in how we perform, especially on a daily basis. Chronotype, um, I think you're absolutely right on that again, too, and that people had an intuitive sense. Hey, I'm a morning person. Hey, I'm an evening person. But there's there's research on there, and there are valid assessments of that. And what we know is that about 15% of us are very strong morning people. Lark's about 20% of us are very strong evening people, owls. Most of us, you know, two-thirds of us are in the middle. But that chronotype actually plays a big role in how you move through a typical day.
0: I think I'm a lark. I am. We can, I go yeah, we can, we can
1: test it right now. Yeah. I mean, there's a back of the envelope. There's a, there's something called the Munich Chronotype Questionnaire, uh, the MCTQ, which is a validated instrument from a fellow named at the in, in, in Munich. We can figure it out together right now. So I ask you, I want you to think about what chronobiologists call a free day. That's a day you don't have to wake up to an alarm clock. It's not a day when you haven't had any sleep for two weeks and you need to sleep. It's just a day when you can wake up when you want to wake up. What time would you typically go to sleep? A day like uh, that?
0: 9, 9.30. 9.30 p.m.?
1: P.m. Okay, great. Okay. And then what time would you... T- so that's not a day when you have to wake up to an alarm clock?
0: Uh, that's just every day. I mean, mo- most of the time I'm in bed asleep by 9.30 a 10 okay. at the latest. And then what time would you typically wake up? I will set my alarm for 5. I typically wake up between 4.30 and 4.45. How about a
1: day when you don't have to be at work? You're not setting an alarm. You just go to sleep on your own and wake up on your own. What would that be? Five th- 5.30. 5.30. So you go to sleep at 9.30, wake up at 5.30. Great. Okay. So all we're figuring out here is your midpoint of sleep. So if you go to sleep at 9.30 and wake up at 5.30, your midpoint of sleep is 1.30. You are a lark, man. You are a serious lark. We're finding your midpoint of sleep, which is for you is 1.30 a.m. Uh, and with the way the distribution works, it looks like this. If your midpoint of sleep is before 3.30, you're a lark. And you're a, you're a serious lark. If your midpoint of sleep is after 5.30, you're an owl. And if your midpoint of sleep is in between, you're the vast majority of people like me, what I call, it, what I call third birds. Does that make sense to you? Do you find yourself? Yeah. That's a very strong lark. And, and actually knowing that is extremely important.
0: And uh, I want to ask you more about that because uh, in the book you give, I, I think this is an interesting book. And I, I I'll just let people know before they get this book, if you were looking for a time management and a productivity book, uh, that's what this is. Even though that isn't what you think it is when you pick the book up, but it it really is in in a very very scientific based way. So you would have advice for people who are a lark. What should I be doing early in the morning? And what should I be doing in the afternoon based on the fact that I am actually a lark?
1: Yeah, yeah. So so what's important, the chronotype is is the first step. What we're looking for is what psychologists, social psychologists call the synchrony effect. So what you want is you want to have synchrony between your type, chronotype, your task, what you're doing, and your time. So most of us uh, move through the day in three stages. You got a peak, a trough, and a recovery. And that's 80% of us move through it in that sequence. Owls are much more complicated. So, for you as a card carrying lark, you're going to have your peak early in the day. You're going to have your trough in the middle of the day, you know, early afternoon, uh, early to mid afternoon. Probably you're still a larky, probably early afternoon. And then you're going to have your, your recovery far later, in, you know, late afternoon and, and early evening. And what research tells us is that we should be doing certain kinds of work in each of these time periods. So, let's go through that. So, during the peak, which for you is the morning, early in the day, but whenever our peak is, Whenever your listeners' peaks are, the peak is when we're most vigilant. That's the key word, about the, the key concept about the peak. It's when we're most vigilant. What does it mean to be vigilant? Vigilance means you can bat away distractions. And that makes it the best time for analytic work. So when, when people are solving analytic problems, they do better. Larks do better in the morning solving analytic problems. Those are problems that bend to the force of analysis, writing, basically, writing a report. I think probably writing anything with the exception of maybe like free verse or something like that, but the vast majority of writing, writing a report, analyzing data, methodically going through the steps of a strategy, that kind of work is better done during the peak, which for you would be in the morning. The trough, there's a lot of data out there showing huge drops in performance in a whole range of different realms in the trough, corporate realm, in standardized test taking, uh, some terrifying evidence in the world of healthcare, uh, differences in ju- judicial and, and jury decision-making. I mean, over and over and over again, traffic accidents, that period is not good. So we should be doing our administrative work as much as we can during that period, answering your routine emails, filling out your report, whatever, that kind of garbage. And then during the recovery, see, that's an, I think recovery is in some ways the most, in, is a very interesting time because this pattern of peak recovery is a pattern in part of our mood. And so, later in the day, for larks like you, your mood is back up, okay, but you're less vigilant. That can be a combination. If you're in positive mood and are less vigilant, that makes it a good time for iterative kinds of work, for brainstorming, for solving what psychologists call insight problems, which actually are problems that don't bend to the force of logic that actually require what they call a lovely turn of phrase, a flash of illuminance to come in and say, ah, you know, here it is. And so. That would be things like brainstorming your, um, you know, uh, what are some other ideas for shows that I have or what are some ideas for, like for you, you know, it'd be like in the mornings you should be writing the book and then the afternoons you should be brainstorming just with the next one.
0: Yeah, that's about how I work. I mean, most of my writing I do in the morning and I feel better doing it. And I I tend to, um, I capture every idea I ever have that I think has value later on. And that tends to happen for me later in the day when it just tends to be, I I feel like at some point the brain kind of turns off and then something comes by and you write it down. That's what it feels like for me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm not as larky as you. I actually would test in the middle, but toward the lark side of the spectrum. And actually, that's actually one of the most, if you look at the distribution of Chronotypes, like I'm in the most common kind of distribution, especially for someone my age. It's like, oh, I'm a little larky, but not crazy. It's not quite the median, but it's the most common part of the chronotype scale. And I mean, I wrote 90% of the words before noon. I came in and gave myself a word count and didn't bring in my phone and did my writing because I knew what's, that was...
0: What's your word count on an average day?
1: Uh, it depends. I'm a very slow writer. So for me, you know, 700 words is good. If I can get 700 words at the start of the day, I'm in great shape. Uh, That's not a big number. There there are novelists out there who are pumping out 3,000 words.
0: I can do 3,000 words, but your sentences are way better than mine. You can do 3,000 words in a day? In a sitting, yeah. But my sentences aren't as good as yours, so the quality of sentences in yours are far. So it's uh, it's an effectiveness score there too, Dan. So your effectiveness yeah. is quite a bit higher than uh,
1: mine. I you write say, good
0: sentences.
1: It's, it's like, but here's the thing: I, I will defend my tortoise pace here because <laughs> for me, you know, seven hundred words, 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 seven hundred words. That really adds up.
0: Yeah. I've um, I've written a blog post every day for eight years. So I've got 500 words a day for eight years, which... That's really good. I was a terrible writer. And now I'm just uh less than average writer. But after <laughs> 3 million words, you start to get a little bit better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. What do you do for your idea capture? You say you capture every ideas. How do you do that? Do you, have, do you use Evernote? Do you...
0: Evernote. Evernote. It doesn't matter what it is uh, I capture it because you. what I think I've learned is writing a blog post every day, you have this great idea. You think it's going to change the world and you write the blog post and it gets two likes. And then you write this toss away idea that you thought like, this is just a throwaway, but I feel like I have to write it anyway. And people are like, that changed my life. And you're like, no, not that one. You mean this one. No. Google brings people to what they're looking for when they're looking for it, despite how you ever feel about anything. You yeah, write.
1: yeah. Yeah. Very good point.
0: Do you feel like every book you've written has gotten better? In some ways, yeah, Yeah, I do. I think having read everything you've written, I think it has. You're a great writer. You always have. But this book is, uh, it's so good. It's a different level.
1: I I do think so. For me, because I'm so close to it, I think of every book as so wildly different. They're almost incomparable. But that's obviously (laughs) just the delusion of ego more than anything else.
0: That's because you have to fall in love with it to do it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I do anyway. I'm thinking about this chronotype as a salesperson since I'm a lark. I want to make my big, important sales calls early in the morning, as early as I can do them. But, Probably. Yeah. But what about the fact that the customer I may be calling could be a third bird or an owl, and I might be getting them with their worst energy?
1: One needs to think very heavily about where the prospect is and what's the best time for the prospect. And for you, I mean, it'd be nice if it were in the best time for the the, the salesperson. But You want the best time for a prospect. And there's actually some good research on this drawing on judicial decision-making, some other kinds of things about how do people make decisions. And I think it's very relevant to sales. So when we think about people making decisions, particularly in this realm where someone is coming to them and and asking them, will you buy this? Will you do this? Will you do this? When people come to the decision in that, the decision-makers arrive at that decision always with a default decision in the back pocket. And the default decision is no. Seriously, it's like, like you ask your boss for a raise. Your default decision is no. You have a prospect. You're trying to sell something. The default decision is no. I mean, the default decision on these kinds of things is no. And so the question then becomes, when are people most likely to overcome the default? And there's a little bit of... There's some good research there showing that people are slightly more likely to overcome the default early in the day and immediately after breaks. Remember, 80% of us go in this order for recovery uh, early in the day and immediately, and immediately after break. And so you can try to find your prospects earlier in the day, maybe not as insanely early as someone like you would start with, but you get your prospects early in the day and immediately after the breaks, they are somewhat more likely to overcome the default. Now, here's the thing about this, and this is really important to understand about any of this stuff about getting the timing right. We're talking probabilities here. So right. people often want like just lockdown simple solutions. This is going to work. And we don't live in that kind of universe. We live in a probabilistic universe. And so for me, the way I look at it is... I'll, I'll give you an example of this. So I do some... For some nonprofits I'm involved in, uh, I do fundraising. And that involves asking. It's selling, basically. It's selling the mission of sure. the organization and asking people for money. Can you write a check for X, Y, or Z to this organization? Okay. Say, in an ordinary circumstance, I might have a 17% chance of getting a yes. Okay, If I get the timing right... I just turned the dial a little bit more in my favor. I go to a 21% chance of getting a yes. Okay, so let's say that's four percentage point difference. That means a 79% chance I'm still going to get a no. Like I'm likely to get a no still, all right? But I'll take that four percentage point increase because if I'm doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over, it's going to redound to my advantage. I think that's the way to think about
0: it. It's like blackjack. You're, you're going to play it that way, right? It's I'm staying on 16. If you can dial up your probability a little bit,
1: Over time,
0: it's going to work out
1: better for you. In a particular moment, who knows? But over time, it is like blackjack. It's like, you know, oh, I'm going to um, stick on 16 and the next hand you lose. It doesn't mean that's a bad strategy. It means that it's like one of those elements of thinking that a lot of people um, grew up. There's a pretty good book on this called Thinking in Bets by Andy Duke, who was a poker player, actually. Uh, I, I picked that up. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And basically, I mean, basically what it shows is that cognitive quirk, the, the mistake, the rabbit hole we fall down is what's, what's called resulting. So when we look at the outcome of a decision and say, oh, if the outcome was good, the decision was good, when in fact, there are plenty of cases where you have you can have good outcomes with crappy decisions. All right? That's just called getting lucky. Or you can have bad outcomes with good decisions, and you're better off over time consistently making your good decisions rather than relying on luck. And, and, or, and basically what she's saying is you can't evaluate a decision based on the outcome. You can evaluate the decision based on the decision. And then right. if, you evaluate, if you evaluate the decision based on the outcome, it's something called resulting. And that, you know... Will lead you but, to make bad decisions. Yeah. So it's like, oh, wow. On the way, you know, on the way home, I, ran a re- I intentionally ran a red light. And look, I got back in time for dinner. That was a great decision that was.
0: <laughs> Sometimes. I've spent so much time reading and rereading uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb that uh, I've been totally, yeah. you know, immunized against uh, just believing everything is a bell curve and you can just find the middle point and say that that's the right answer. When there's just such a wide range in in selling, particularly what I, I call a dynamic, you know, complex human interaction, it's all over the place. I mean, there's not one right answer. Thankfully, no.
1: The other thing is, there's a lot of randomness in life too that we don't like getting, our, that we don't like talking about, we don't like getting our minds around. It causes us existential problems when we realize how random things are, and so we like to infect simple narratives retrospectively so that we can explain things that were otherwise random. Does it make us
0: Yeah. I, I was talking to Tom Peters. I met him in New York, and um, the conversation we had. I, I said, if Bill Gates would have been born in 1846, he wouldn't be Bill Gates. And he said, I. If he was born six months earlier, he wouldn't be Bill Gates. No, that's interesting. That's you know, interesting. It's, there's, a, there's a lot of luck and yeah. a lot of things yeah. that you can account for. Yeah. If Bill Gates
1: were born in 1840, he would be, wow, he's the smartest farmer in our town.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's got the biggest farm, super productive, but that's yeah. the end of that. Um, so we have the peak, we have the trough, we have recovery. And I want to talk for a minute. I tend to do work in 90 minute blocks. And I don't know why I ever started doing 90-minute blocks, but that's what I do. And mostly, I think it's so I can turn my phone off, don't answer email, give something yeah. my full attention for some period of time so I can try to do reasonably good work, which I find impossible to do when you're distracted. So, yeah. you talk in the book about, and all of this is, is well-researched. So, anything that we're saying here, it really is backed up by a lot of scientific research and a lot of studies. But you mentioned this idea of a restorative break. At the end of each chapter of the book, I'm saying this for people who don't have the book so they understand this, there's a sort of a how-to segment of the book to say, here's how you actually apply these in real life, which I love, because it's practical and tactical. So, you can, you can just do this. 52 minutes and then a 17-minute break.
1: Well, okay. So, on that one, that is some research done by the folks at Rescue Time, and that's what they found out. I don't fully, fully buy that what I do buy, because I don't think it's true that every person is 52, I think what people should do is what you're doing, which is figure out what's right for them. It is pretty clear. Some large, decent-sized block of unerodent time followed by a break is the way to go. I think there's incredible individual variance within the person. I I find for me, the sweet spot is less than 90, you know, a little over an hour, all right, where I can go straight, heads down, and then maybe take a 5-10 minute break. And that seems to work best for me. Uh, but there's some days when I feel differently where I can, I can do that 90-minute block and then take a, short, take a shorter break. But I think that's the key right there is just knowing the broad... We know the broad design principles. Analytic work in the peak, administrative work in the trough, insight work in the recovery. Now, how it actually works for you in the ground truth of sitting at your desk and doing your work, So I don't think there's a magic number, but I do think that the design principle that you're suggesting big block of time followed by a break, big block of time followed by a break And the peak, is, is it's pretty clear that's the way to do it.
0: I, I think, you know, the, the 90 minutes that I have in the morning at five o'clock in the morning when no one's awake and my dogs don't even want to go out. I mean, they look at me like, why are you up so early? That 90 minutes feels like three hours of work wow. because there's just, there's no distractions. No one wants yeah. my time. And I can literally give myself over to something rather than having a phone ringing and emails coming in and people walking around, that focus does more work for me than anything else. Absolutely. Um, I have unknowingly been doing the Nappuccino thing for a long ah. time. And I didn't know that that was, a, it was called, I just mostly love coffee. Uh-huh. And uh, I also take a nap and my wife has criticized me because I sleep for 25 minutes. I drink coffee and then I sleep for 25 minutes. She sleeps for 90 to 120. Which is for not a like nap? a nap. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a good that's nap, right? That's yeah. like a full night's sleep. So we found an area where I'm right and she's wrong. And thankfully, she doesn't listen to the podcast. Yeah. So I'm not yeah. going to say that out loud. But I think it's interesting, the benefits of napping, number one, and the, the concept of a nappuccino for people who don't know what that is. Will you share the benefits first and, and tell people yeah. why it's such, it's, it's such a good idea?
1: Yeah. So, so, so there's a lot of research on napping and and napping is pretty darn good for us. Um, Restores mental acuity, restores our mood. It's, it's, it's really pretty good. The the thing is, is that the ideal nap though is much shorter than I ever would have imagined. I would, I would naps in the past, not that often. And I would wake up feeling terrible. Uh, And it was because basically I was doing it wrong. Um, The ideal nap is 10 and 20 minutes long. And that's when we get the restored benefits of the nap without what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, boggy feeling you get when you wake up. And there's a way to turbocharge that, as you're suggesting. And I, and I do it. I do it right in that chair, right over there. I'm pointing. For those of you listening, I'm pointing right now. We're talking about video. I'm pointing to the chair in the corner, right over there in my office. And what I'll do is I'll put on my noise canceling headphones. And I will, no joke, I will set my phone alarm for 25 minutes. But before I close my eyes, I'll have a decent sized cup of coffee. And, and here, I don't even enjoy the coffee. I basically make a cup of coffee and I throw like three ice cubes in and go, oh, just bug it. <laughs> and and um, I'm serious. And then I will close my eyes. It takes me maybe 10 minutes to fall asleep. And my alarm goes off after 25 minutes. And so 25 minus 10 will give me a 15-minute nap that's right in that window. Now, that, where it gets interesting is that when I'm awakening after 25 minutes, I get an added boost because it takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to enter our bloodstream. So I'm waking up, I've got the restoration of a nap, don't have the sleep inertia. And at that moment, I mean, I'm footnoted in there. There are scientific papers on the Nappuccino. Uh, it's a very effective technique. And what's interesting having since I've written this book is the number of people who are already doing this thing. Yeah. Everybody thought it was weird and this is how i do it. Da, da, da. And especially people saying, I got, I got two groups of people who send me emails about this. One is people saying, literally often these exact words. That's how I got through graduate school <laughs> and, and literally those exact words. And then the other people, and then a lot of people in the military saying yeah. that's what I do to stay alert. Um, because you know, depending on my shift and what I have to do. Uh,
0: my grandmother, uh, lived to be 93 and she used to do what she said. She was going to take 40 winks, you know, like 10, it was just literally like 10 minutes. She would go to sleep and then she'd be grandma again, just like that. Like She's back, and that's yep. how long it would take her to do that. I, I'm saying that because this is. I'm just thinking about the the scientific evidence that seems to be piling up about sort of our paleo ancestors and this sort of innate intelligence uh, that developed as we evolved is interesting to me. And it seems that this book has some of that. Like we we are we sort of have this biological clock that's working. We have these things that we now know but i think as americans maybe specifically uh, for some reason we we might be equally hardwired by the culture to work against these natural rhythms you know in the most aggressive way possible like breaks are weakness you know naps are for weakness you're supposed to stay up late at night and get up early in the morning and do all this work and and when you're looking at it you're like this this doesn't make any sense we're not wired for this and so we're nowhere near as productive as we could be by chasing productivity. And you're nodding. I can't see that.
1: I am, I am nodding vigorously for those of you who can't see this. I think that's such a good point. I'm so with you on that. You made a couple of really important points there. We are biological creatures. Okay. We can't get around that. We are biological creatures. And one of the things we know about biological creatures, this biological creature, is that our cognitive abilities don't stay the same throughout the day. Okay. That's a fact of nature. It's raining outside or I'm six feet tall and not six foot seven. And therefore, I'm not going to be a star basketball player. All right. That's just a, it's just a fact. All right. Our cognitive abilities don't stay the same throughout the day. We are biological creatures and we have to reckon with that. And yet, when you talk about a lot of what we do right now, the way we feel right now are evolutionary adaptations. They allowed us to survive. Then I think you're exactly right that the that the American culture is in some ways runs against that grain. So we think that amateurs take breaks, but professionals don't. That is as wrong as a statement can be. Actually, the research on performance shows that professionals are actually top performers are very good break takers. They're very intentional of break. It's the amateurs who don't take breaks. I would see your American and just get even raise you the Puritan somehow.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's this. what it is
1: we have this Puritanical and I'm going to make a wild guess from your last name. Your family does not have much of direct connection to the Puritans. Right? <laughs> no, <laughs> right? none. You, you were your family. Your family was not coming over here. 1620 on the Mayflower. No. Right. Okay. And so, and yet, you know, neither was mine and neither were the vast majority of Americans, particularly Americans who aren't white came from South America. They came from Asia. They came here unwillingly they came here from from all over the world and yet no matter where we're from somehow we have this puritanical belief that it's not only you get more done by powering through but it's morally virtuous to power through and that's just nonsense i mean it's really nonsense scientifically and so we have to shed that and yet as someone like me who's grown up in a, you know who grew up in america has lived in america his entire life i still have that kind of muscle memory about what is right and what is wrong when it comes to performance
0: I work a lot of hours, but I, I tend to do three ninety-minute blocks a day. That that's really focused work. That's yep. four and a half hours, and yep. and then in between, I just deal with the natural troughs personally by doing something else and, and not being in that focus yep. mode. Because I don't yep. think you can maintain that. I, I know I can't maintain that focus no for more about ninety minutes, and then no and then I'm sort of uh, I'm sort of drained of it. You know, yep. physically, sort of so you can feel it. A couple other questions. In, in sales, we argue about presenting. And I have always preferred to go last. I want the last bite at the apple only because I want to see what kind of questions have come up and what kind of concerns someone might have that give me an insight that allows me to, to have the last attempt at them. But that may not always be right. And you have uh, made a case. So I'm going with recency bias. And you're choosing... And that's,
1: uh, and that's, and that's important. Bias. Well, yeah. yes and no. I mean, here's the thing. If this is a question, you know, do you go first or do you go last? It depends. Um, it really does. And, but I, I think that the, the research gives us some amount of guidance to track our way out of the, uh, out of the muck. And it seems that going first is advantageous for in you know, a few circumstances. One of them, if there, are, if there aren't that many... We're talking about going first in a serial competition, where it's like pitch right. after pitch after pitch after Th-
0: pitch. That, that's right.
1: That's yeah. right. Um, uh, going first can confer a slight advantage if there are relatively few competitors, right? Um, and, and that seems to be that seems to be pretty clear. Um, well, the way that
0: this works in in real life, somebody that lets an RFP, they'll whittle it down to five and have five sort of preliminary, sort of the beauty pageant. Right. And then you're down to two. Normally, it ends up the last two get to come in and make a final pitch. Right. So that's a a very narrow number now. You only have two. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So well, with two, I mean, I'm not sure the sequence effects matter all that much when it comes to two, actually.
0: What about five?
1: Um, Five, I think it does. I really do. So relatively few competitors, you're actually better off going first. You're not the default choice. Going first is better. All right. So if you're not the default, someone else is the incumbent, you're better off going first. So relatively few competitors, and you're not the default. However, going last, if there are a lot of competitors, absolutely go last. Um, Here's the thing where I think is most relevant. If the criteria are not a little bit fuzzy, definitely go last. Because what you see over and over again is that they use those first few competitors to the, the decision makers to figure out what it is they want. And then when Anthony comes in, oh, this guy's perfect now that we know what we want. But it's, it's worth thinking about those sequence effects. And in the book, I have you know, more specific guidance on that. But again, it's one of those things where on a lock, but you're going to turn the dial in your favor percentage points. And over time, that, that pays off big time.
0: I think I, gravi- I gravitated towards the final spot because people are trying to figure out what they want. And then when they have the questions and I'm there to answer the questions, I win. So it, it's nice when you get the last bite at the apple. Right. Um, are you experiencing a midpoint slump? Uh, I might be. I think, (laughs) yeah, Uh, yeah. I think
1: I might be. So I'm at the age. So, so what we know about well being over time is that it's shaped like a U. And so we we tend to have higher well being in our 20s and 30s, dips in our 40s, drops considerably. It's not a crisis at all, but drops in our 50s and then goes back up again. And so I and the age at which American men hit their bottom, the median age is 52.9. I'm 53. So uh, so I might be having a little bit, you know, sort of um, thinking about what have I done and realizing that there's some things that I'm probably not going to accomplish, but not, not anything, not anything drastic.
0: I'm hoping this podcast helps give you the significance that you need to sort of power you through. If nothing else, remember, I'm at the exact bottom of the curve. So, in this podcast, I will have aged, which means <laughs> that I'm up
1: a little Start bit. Start
0: up. Good, good. I'm glad I could help you because I'm right behind you. So, yeah. you lead the way and then let me know yeah, how to going, work. Yeah, yeah this. you have
1: to go down a little bit more before you hit, before you come to my neighborhood at the bottom here.
0: Good, good to know. Um, what changes have you made in your own life as a result of what you learned from this book? And you started this by saying, this is the book that you wanted to read. And, and that means that, like a lot of us, you write the book that solves your problem.
1: I made a lot of changes. So I actually became much more intentional, as we were talking about earlier, about the scheduling my own work. And so to write this book, I would come into my office in the morning, and I would not bring my phone with me into the office, and I would set myself that quota. And I would not open my email and I not do anything else until I hit my number. And I wasn't always, believe me, I didn't always write that way. And so, as I said before, I wrote uh, 90% of the words in this book before noon. Um, And that was really helpful. And the other thing is, this is the first book I've ever delivered on time.
0: I've I've never been late. And uh, it's interesting because you're such a good writer. I would never have guessed that from you. But you talk about showing up late with a book throughout the book. So I I didn't know you were actually just writing about you. You mentioned it, like, if you're going to be late... uh, Turning something in, you mentioned that a couple times. Though. Oh,
1: really? Okay, huh? That's interesting. that might have leaked out. My guilt <laughs> might have leaked out of some way. I actually don't remember that
0: consciously. Um, are, are are you editing and pruning right now? <clears throat> I'm moving to uh, end points. The people that you have in your life at this midpoint slump.
1: I think I am, and I'm not. Um, it's not as if I'm like resisting meeting new people, but there's some interesting research on. You know, when you think about the friends that you have and the people who you're closest to, um, those are by far the source of meaning in our lives. Those are the source right. of satisfaction. And so I'm trying to be a little bit more deliberate in concentrating on those kinds of things. The other thing is that there's some interesting research on friendship that's, that, that I've started reading, showing that you know one of the most important elements in forming a friendship is time. You have to spend a decent amount of time with people in order to forge an actual real friendship. So what's interesting, I, at least to me, is that I have friends who I stay in touch with today who I met my freshman year of college, who happened to live near me my freshman year of college. And I think that this literally, I've been in contact with probably five of those people either in person, by phone, or by email in the last week. Okay, huh. And you know, I was a freshman in college 30 plus years ago. And, and I think it was because you know, when you're a freshman in college, it's just like you spend a lot of time together. That's what actually forwards that, that friendship. And I think it's harder when you have the demands of work, of kids, of aging parents, other kinds of obligations in life to actually form those super enduring friendships when you're 53 years old. You, don't, you it,
0: literally don't have the time.
1: You're right. Literally. Yeah. And yeah. you... I've been thinking a lot about that, you know, like sort of... You know, maybe I should double down on some of my like closest existing friends, and and I could certainly double down when it comes to my family.
0: It made me, it's made me think a lot about that. Have you read the book uh, "Chasing Daylight" by Eugene O'Kelly, who was the chairman and CEO of KPMG? He was diagnosed with glioblastomia, and he knew he wasn't going to be able to win the fight, so he decided he was going to wind down all of his relationships. Now, when he made that decision, he was the head of a company with ten thousand employees. And he drew five concentric circles that you can actually see in the book with his wife in the center, then his kids, then his Mm -hmm. extended family, then friends, and then KPMG, his business assistants. And he decided to work his way towards the middle. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was going to wind down those so the rest of his time would be spent with his family. And about halfway through the process, he realizes, I got the whole thing wrong. All of the time should be spent here in the couple circles in the middle, and I can send notes to the rest of these people. And I wasted part of this six-month period that he had. And uh, I've given it to a, I've given that book to a lot of people. What's it, do it again? It's called Chasing Daylight, uh, Eugene O'Kelly. It's a brilliant book. And when you read it, it's a short little read. But when you read it, you start to really get some serious clarity around finite, non-renewable resource any of us has is time. And the things that you really care about fit in a very small circle, you know, And, and you spend a lot of time outside of that circle. And it gives you some real clarity about what that means. I want to move on because uh, you took money out of my pocket this week for the Big Idea Club. And uh, you're a good salesman. Actually, Malcolm was. I'm interested in that. So I signed up. I want people who are listening, just tell people what, what you've done. So it's you, it's Malcolm Gladwell, it's Adam Grant, and who else? One other person. And Susan Cain.
1: The author and Susan of- Cain, yeah. So, the four of us are working with a company called Helio for on something called the Next Big Idea Club, where the four of us get together. We pick every quarter two books that we think are sort of a little bit under the radar that are important for readers to reckon with, uh, maybe written by people who aren't yet famous uh, and trying to bring them to wider attention. And then what we do is we send uh, Helio sends them out to. Uh, subscribers, along with a bunch of other extra material, uh, interviews with the authors, and, and that kind of thing. And it's just another way to spread ideas. And we also, um, the four of us, we don't make any money off of this uh, charity. Yeah, instead, instead, we mm-hmm. give what would have been our sliver to uh, um, get books for this program. I'm on the advisory board called the Future Project, which is a project that serves mostly underserved teams, but sort of tries to mash them up with. Projects um, outside of school that are meaningful to them, uh, where they can actually use their strength and develop and develop their talents. And the idea here is that what we wanted to do was not only get these books out to people like you who are already influential and established, and that, but also get them out to people who might not have ever been given a hardcover book before. And and yep. so the idea that you can give two big idea books a quarter to these these young men and women is really outstanding. It's one of those, you know, I, I like every once in a while
0: having a project that goes better than I expected. This book must be doing well for you. It looks like it is. It's about five months on the New York Times.
1: Pretty, we're putting pretty good numbers on the board. So that's that's good. And, you know, I'm getting, and, you know, and I'm also getting a lot of, um, I'm getting a lot of email from people who are saying, oh my God, it's like, I'm going to take a nap or I've completely, <laughs> recon- completely changed my schedule or, uh, the thing that you were talking about before, about the editing friends at the end of your life, sort of the, thing, the, the third stage
0: of your life, I've gotten a lot on that, too. I'll bet. You run out of time, and you have to think about what's important. Do yeah. you meditate? I've tried. Everything I've read about meditation is suggests absolutely worth doing. Um, it's worth doing. I, I haven't done it in a sustained way. I study with uh, a Zen master who um, made me feel a lot better about meditation. I said, you know, but sometimes I fall asleep. And he goes, good. When you fall asleep, be asleep. And that's what you're doing. It's okay. Thank sure. you so much for being here. The book is brilliant. Thank you. Your All your work's good, but I think this is your Thank best you. work. It is transformative, And I think when people read it, they're going to get a lot out of it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me back on the program. That was Dan Pink. You can find him at danpink.com. You can find the book, Win, at amazon.com or your local Barnes & Noble. That's where I picked up my hardcover. I also bought the book on Audible, and I recommend that Dan reads it, and he does a terrific job reading the book. He's a good reader, and it makes for a more interesting listen. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com, where I post daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash An Arena. When you go there, do hit subscribe and I'll see you back here next time in the arena. If you want to improve your sales results or the results of your team, I want to share a new program I've created for you. The program is called Sales Accelerator and it's a training platform for salespeople, sales managers, and sales leaders. The training platform includes 450 individual chapters and 33 individual courses with a new course or two being added every single week. I wanna share with you one of my favorite programs. It's called Coach, and there are 104 chapters in this program, with more added every couple weeks. In this course, I give you language for all of the common prompts, objections, and concerns your clients will throw at you. If you wanna know what to say and how to say it, this program will give you everything you need. If you want B2B sales training that allows you to up your game, become a peer and a trusted advisor and learn the -the state-of-the-art consultative selling, this is the program for you. Go visit me at b2bsalestraining.com and we'll reach out to give you a demo. If you want to make more sales faster, let me show you how to accelerate your results.